Initiating podcast. All systems go. Welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. Happy April Fool's Day. Happy April Fool's Day. So, I kind of like this, uh, this, what is it? It's not a holiday, but it's a, it's a day. It's a holy day, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that one. I don't know. But I always like this day, um, mostly because it's like, really spring is now like, officially happening, and the winter is officially going away. That's really all. It's you know, it's one of those markers, right? You have that very first marker is pitchers and catchers report, and like that's the first marker that oh, winter might be ending soon. Oh, yeah, that's super exciting. But April Fool's Day is another one where you actually flip the calendar to April, and it just feels good. Now, have you ever? Uh, do you have any good April Fool's Day stories? Any pranks that you've pulled on anybody or anything like that? Um, I don't have any particularly great stories that I've pulled on anyone, but I do remember last year, I think it was last year that I actually fell for one and it was, it was pretty good. It was like, an, it was a news story or a, rather a fake news story. Yes. Those are so good. Yeah. And it was, um, I'm sure you're familiar with father Mike Schmitz. Mm-hmm. There was this news story. I don't know if you saw it where it said, he was becoming bishop somewhere or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I remember somebody told me this and I was like, that's crazy. Like, that's awesome. But, uh-huh. you know, just, and, just yeah. believable enough. It's got to be just <laughs> believable enough for you yeah. to go, is, wait, is this yeah. real? Yeah. It, it, that's the thing. It, it wasn't anything like crazy. Mm-hmm. It was, it was certainly plausible. Right. And I was just like, Wow. I, you know, I'll miss seeing him at, you know, so many events that I, that I often <laughs> see him at, but, but man, it, it really got me though. <laughs> yeah. I believe that, uh, Google does a fantastic job with April Fool's Day. Um, and in the past they've like really done a good job. I, I haven't paid attention lately to see what they've done, but my all time favorite one was when they, uh, they introduced a new feature. So if Google's introducing something on, on April 1st, you know, it's, it's not going to be like real, uh, but they introduced a feature called, um, uh, was it, uh, Google paper, Google paper, <laughs> um, or Gmail paper. It was Gmail paper, something like that. And, uh, it was a new service that they were starting up where you could have, uh, your emails, uh, printed off on paper and mailed to you. Wow. Like, like snail mail. That's very basically. fancy. Yes. Right. <laughs> the newest feature, high yeah. tech uh, technology there. It's so old. It's new. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So, um, but you know what they did? You know what else they launched on April Fool's Day? Gmail. Did they Gmail really? itself. Really? I, I just saw this recently, actually. It was originally released on April Fool's Day. Wow. I like didn't back, know that. back in the days when it was by invite only. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were cool enough to have one of I those was. by invite only. I got in first by invite. Yeah. Yep. Me too. And yeah, I I was shocked to hear that because I, I have heard their notorious stories for <laughs> all the crazy stuff that they 
you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. release on April Fool's Day. So I've, I've actually got a list in front of here. So in a, on April Fool's Day 2006, Google Romance was announced. <laughs> 2007, ha, Gmail Paper. Gmail Paper. So it changed, Google changed the login page for Gmail to announce a new service called Gmail Paper. The service offered uh, to allow users of Google's free webmail service to add emails to a paper archive, which Google would print a 94% post-consumer organic soybean sputum and mail via traditional post. So I love that. That's so good. <laughs> That's great. So how about you? Do you have any particular pranks that you're proud of? I mean... The seminary is always good for pranks. There's always a lot of pranks happening. Maybe not specifically on on April Fool's Day, but uh, you know, you know what they say: what happens in the seminary stays in the seminary. Is that what they say? I guess so. At least I don't at, know. Least I've never been. The pranks. <laughs> at least in terms of the pranks, there's some good ones. Um, maybe off air, I'll tell you some of those. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe in the future we should get Father Tom back on here and we can talk. We can talk about some of his seminary pranks. Oh boy, there we go. That'd be good. <laughs> So let's talk about our topic for today, being fools for Christ. Uh, and so really, uh, we want to talk about uh, what Paul is, St. Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 10. Um, that's where that, that phrase comes from, being a fool for Christ. So uh, what we want to do is just read the whole uh, context of, uh, read the, read the um, where it comes from, and uh, we'll talk about it. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 6 is I've applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brethren, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast of it as if it were not a gift? Already you are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become and are now as the refuse of the world, the dregs of all things. That was pretty lighthearted for April Fool's Day. Yeah, definitely. So I think what helps us to understand what St. Paul is talking about here, because he, you know, He's really going after them a little bit, uh, is to understand the situation in Corinth at the time. And uh, so what I want to do is I want to begin by reading the introduction to uh, the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture on 1 Corinthians. Here's the first paragraph. Imagine that in a dream one night, you find yourself in a parish where there are several drunks at Sunday Mass, where some members are claiming that there is no resurrection of the dead and that Jesus is not really present in the Eucharist. The parishioners are divided into cliques and factions. The president of the Ultra Society is not talking to the head catechist. There is public, unchallenged adultery, and many marriages are in disarray. A group is dabbling in New Age spirituality. The liberals, the charismatics, and the traditionalists are all trumpeting their version of the church. 
and masses are abbreviated for the sake of Sunday football, one of the many signs the parish has compromised heavily with the surrounding secular culture. Oof. I read that and went. Oh, yeah, he's definitely talking about uh, not us. Definitely not talking about us, right? Yeah, definitely not. Yikes. I don't know what parish would be like that. Yeah, definitely not. I've never, ever seen anything like that. So uh, this is really the situation of Corinth at the time, um, what was described here. Corinth is a wealthy city, one of the largest of the ancient world. It was a center for commerce and trade, so that had a lot of cultures mingling together. Uh, It was a melting pot of sorts, not like anything we've seen here. Of course not. Ever. Definitely not. It's also very similar to the ancient world's Las Vegas, their sin city. Uh, So a large point that Paul is trying to get across here is that Christians must be separate from the world to live in the world, but not of the world. And uh, I think we have a lot to learn from from First Corinthians today. Um, some of those things hit a little close to home. Yeah. Some of those descriptors. Yeah. And I think probably a lot more than many people might even appreciate. I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, like, you know, when when you first read that as we were <laughs> as we were preparing for this episode, my first thought was of the Pew study. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where... I don't, I don't know what the exact percentage was, but I think it said something like 60% of Catholics believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. I actually thought it was like a third or something. It was, oh, okay. I thought, I thought it was Either flipped. whatever the percentage is, anything, you know, less than 100 is Yeah, we got some work good. to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's what it made me think of. And then I also thought of, you know, the recent uh, Disciple Makers Index that our diocese did. Yeah. Where... We actually asked those questions like how many people believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Yep. And believe it or not, it's not 100%. Like no. we're, we're not getting, you know, in a lot of cases, depends where you're at, of course, but in a lot of cases, you know, we're not even hitting 90% of parishioners that believe yep. that scripture is the inspired word of God or, you know, stuff like that. And so this is... This is a very real challenge yeah. that we're going through right now in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but something else that was really striking me with St. Paul's words was just this idea of the two kingdoms, his comparing yeah. and contrasting, how he how he talks about the rich and the poor, um, basically the blessed and the cursed, and this different language, and really what he's um, really what he's articulating is that there's two kingdoms to use Jesus's words. There's the kingdom of heaven and then there's the kingdom of this world. And what Paul's saying is he's he's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying you're either of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and this is what it looks like. It looks like my life and the life of the other apostles or you're of the world and here's what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying basically choose um and something very interesting too here is the language that he uses where he talks about kings the rich and the poor the blessed and the cursed are we being sentenced to life or to death you know there's this interesting contrast from language throughout the rest of scripture because you know like for instance how we've talked about you know, we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. Or, you know, the riches 
of the gospel of Christ, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's important to note that he's really decisively talking about something different here. Um, and a lot of times these, these descriptors of, in worldly terms, they're used um, in order to present an analogy of really what the gospel does when it takes hold of our life. Um, and so basically what you can think of is all these descriptions, really what he's saying is you either have the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the world, and you get to choose. That's right. You can't leave them both at the same time. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. I think something that um, we struggle with now is uh, you know, Vatican II was a fantastic council. The documents of Vatican II are absolutely beautiful. But I think something we've fallen into is is kind of going a little bit too far in that direction where we're trying to not only reach the world, but appeal to the world. Yeah. And we can't do both at the same time. We can't reach the world um, with with the truth of the gospel, but also try and appeal to the world. The, the gospel in itself, uh, in just by its very nature, uh, provokes hostility by the world. It provoke. It's a really contra way to live to the to the world, um, and I think we've tried to to play that game and, and dance that dance a little bit too long and a little bit too far. And and I think we're we're seeing the results of that right now. You know, even in our uh, own diocese, we we released a, a, a document recently on um, on uh, gender, and really saying you know. This is the biblical truth about how God created us, male and female. And I think the diocese was really expecting a lot of blowback from that. And they didn't really get any at all. Like nobody said anything because nobody cares what the church has to say anymore. Yeah. I think that's a real thing that, you know, we're not, nobody's listening to us anymore. You know, nobody like is tuning in. Oh, I wonder what the Catholic church thinks about this. I wonder what the United States conference of Catholic bishops thinks about this. Nobody cares. Yeah. We got to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. Yeah. And that's what we, that's what, that people really care about. Yeah. Can we proclaim the truth in, in a world that's going to be hostile to it? Yeah. We've got to stop conforming to the world and stop living of the world. Yeah. And it's like, can we can we proclaim the gospel in a way that's effective? Yes. Where it where it actually brings about change in the hearts of the people first within right. the church. Yep. Um, because, you know, ultimately if if we're not living the gospel if people aren't seeing the fruit because let's be honest even non-spiritual people can see fruit mm -hmm. they know what fruitfulness is exactly. even if they can't describe it yep even if they don't have you know saint paul's letters describing what the fruits of the spirit are they can still recognize it and when they see it absent from our proclamation of the gospel then in their mind it's irrelevant yeah and yep. to to some extent, they're probably right. I mean, if it if it's not bringing about change in our lives, and if that's not flowing out into the world, then you know what's the point? Yeah, and that's really I think what Saint John Paul II saw when he called for a new evangelization. I mean, he it's, he saw that we weren't make that change wasn't happening. We weren't proclaiming the gospel in a way that people could receive it. So we needed to change how are we proclaiming the gospel. And, and that means in some cases, and maybe a lot of cases, it means looking like fools to the world it means looking like a fool to the world. Yeah. You know, we're going to be called names. We're going to be um, targeted and that's okay. It's okay that we're going to look like fools to the world. Um, 
you know, St. Paul even, he, he says it himself where he says, you know, the cross is uh, a stumbling block for Jews and a folly to Gentiles, and yet we proclaim Christ crucified. To the world, the cross looks like a, a symbol of failure, and yet it's not. To us, it's a symbol of victory. That's our sign of victory over sin and death. The world doesn't see it that way. And we can take that not just on the crucifixion, but on, you know, especially you look at the hot button issues of our day. And yeah. people are going to say, well, you're nuts for thinking that. You're nuts for, for believing what the church believes. And no, the answer is actually no. No, we're, we're speaking the truth in and, and the face of a hostile culture that would, that would want the opposite to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's also important to recognize that it takes a real spiritual maturity yes. in order to not only live what the church teaches, but to be okay with that sort of friction in our daily lives yep. when we're out in the world. And so um, another thing that came to mind as we were talking about this, this passage was really the idea of the leaven. So Jesus says to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, you know, personally, I used to wonder, what the heck is Jesus talking about here? What is he talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, we can really just look at the Pharisees and how Jesus rebuked them and Herod and, and Jesus' interaction with Herod. And basically what he's saying, the leaven of the Pharisees, they what it means is like this emphasis on external acts with little importance given to faith. Right. So it, you know, I, I think like the classic example of this is the Pharisee who's um, in the synagogue. And then there's, you know, this, this other Jew or the, rather this tax collector um, who's there and he's beating his breast. And meanwhile, the, the Pharisee is off at the front where, where people can see him. And he's saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. He's there for the external signs. He's, mm -hmm. not, he's not really there for the faith. Yep. Um, so Jesus is telling his own disciples, the apostles, he's saying, beware of this in your life. Beware of, you know, saying, well, you know, it's good that I go to church, unlike the rest of the world out there. Um you know, beware of this, and we need to remove it from our life. Correct. And then we look at the leaven of Herod. What is Herod all about? Politics. That's probably the best word yeah. to describe him. Politics, Definitely. manipulation, and then ultimately in his, you know, in his act of killing John the Baptist, saving face. Yep. He was so concerned with all of his guests and what they would think of him if he didn't do this, even though he didn't want to. Even, even a person as evil as Herod who, you know, massacred infants and, you know, all these other horrendous things, he didn't want to do this, but he gave in in order to save face. Mm -hmm. And like I, like I just said, it, it's important to know that, you know, Jesus was warning his own apostles of this. All the time he did. Yeah, he constantly warned yeah. them. The coming persecutions. Yeah. No doubt. So then that begs the question, well, then what is the kingdom of heaven? 
or what is the what is the leaven of heaven then mm-hmm. and it it means that we're rooted in faith we see beyond external ex- appearances and we rely on love rather than manipulation yeah it's got to be got to be uh built on on love cuz it's all about the truth in the end you know when we we look at keeping up appearances and the external stuff that's all fake it's all fake. Even our Facebook pages, right? They're all yep. they're all fake, and they're our carefully crafted image of who we want ourselves to be viewed as. But it has no regard for the truth, and so to be part of the kingdom of heaven means to be rooted in truth and love, and that's more important than anything else. More important than anything else. Um, so let's be fools for Christ. Let's Amen. be fools for Christ, and let's. You know, let that truth and love uh, guide everything we do, even if it means we're going to look like fools to the world. I don't care. I'd rather have the, the eternal prize of heaven in the end and live in that truth and love. So today is not only April Fool's Day, uh, today is Holy Thursday. And so there's two great things happening on this day. First one is the institution of the Eucharist. So that's the obvious one, right? Because it's the Mass of the Last Supper in the evening. Um, But it's also the institution of the priesthood. So Jesus is really kind of doing both things at the same time. He's instituting the Eucharist and he's instituting the priesthood. Now, let's start with the priesthood. and, uh, and that really d- doesn't begin at the Mass of the Last Supper. That begins earlier in the day at the Chrism Mass. The Chrism Mass takes place uh, that morning for the Diocese of Lansing. And then um, we come back in the evening and do the Mass of the Last Supper. Now, I, I love the Chrism Mass. I've got quite a few reasons for it. Um, if you've ever been to a Chrism Mass, you'll notice that uh, when the bishop stands up to preach, at least our bishop here in the Diocese of Lansing, he will uh, begin with an apology and he does this every year, and it's great. He apologizes to everyone who's who's there, um, but he's not going to preach to them. He's preaching to us priests, which is really cool. I, I really do look forward to that homily every year because uh, he's preaching right to me as a priest, and he really gets to address me as a priest. He encourages me as a priest and shows um, his unity with me as a priest, and I really, really do enjoy that. Uh, one of the things we do as well at that Mass is we renew our unity with the bishop. We renew our priestly promises during that Mass as well. So that's a yearly renewal of our priestly promises, which is just a fantastic thing. Um, I really love it. Have you ever been to a Chrism Mass? Yeah, I've actually been to one. This was a few years ago. This was um, when I was in college, and I went in the Saginaw area. So I went to the Diocese of Saginaw. They do it on a Tuesday. And it just so happened to work out where, you know, I had, I heard about the Chrism Mass that it was going on and I happened to not have any classes that morning. So I was like, you know, I'll go. And so I head there and I, you know, wasn't particularly early because I'm like, you know, how many people are really going to show up on a right. Tuesday morning? And so I get there and I have to park literally a half mile away from the cathedral. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was... <laughs> 
it was kind of crazy. And apparently I was the only one in that situation because it seemed like everyone was already there. <laughs> they knew. They yeah. knew. Get yeah, there it was early. a great mass, but I was not expecting that. Yeah, and that's not a giant cathedral either. So there's they must have been packed to the gills that yeah, day. Yeah, it, it was. Smokes. I was like up in the balcony in the in the very back. Wow. Fortunately, I was just I wasn't like with anyone else, so it was they easy could shove you wherever. To, yeah, yeah. I could I could stand or find a seat between you know yep. the two twelve person families that seated together. <laughs> that's right. And and for the diocese of Lansing, that's really pretty much the same same deal there too. If you want to get there, you better get there early. As a seminarian, they uh, when you're in college seminary, um, you you don't serve yet in the mass until you're in major seminary. But when I was in college seminary, they uh, they set set you up in a suit and they say you're the ushers, and so you got to find spots for all these people. So for three years, I had to help find people find spots wherever we could find them, but there just never was any spots. It's always packed. So yeah. this year will be a little different in that sense. Um, we, we get to show up. So last year we had to do it. I attended virtually, which kind of sucked. Yeah. Um, but this year we get to be present, but there's not going to be a lot of people who are able to go. It's by invite only uh, because usually that mass is, is so packed. Yeah. So, um, so there's all the other thing that happens during this, uh, mass is that the bishop blesses the three oils. Uh, so there's three different oils that we use. Uh, and as says priests, we use uh, three different oils for different occasions. The first one is the oil of the infirm. Uh, so we use that for anointing of the sick primarily. Uh, the oil of the catechumenate. And we see that uh, baptisms, confirmations, and sacred chrism. And that's the good stuff. That's the stuff that smells real good. So when I do a baptism, it's my favorite part of the baptism. I get to pour chrism on the baby's head, and uh, I don't go light with the chrism. I like to really make sure yeah. that baby smells good for like a week. Make sure they're fully anointed. That's right. That's right. And and my hands smell good all day, too, as a result of that. So yeah. it's bonus. It's great. One of my favorite experiences of the Chrism Mass was when I was a deacon. So I was a transitional deacon, and as a transitional deacon, um, I got to serve with the bishop real close during the Chrism Mass. So there was two of us, me and Father Joe Campbell, and so there was two, us two deacons on either side of the bishop. And as they brought the oils forward, um, you know, so they brought the oils forward, the bishop would bless them and move them off to the side. And these are the oils that are used throughout the entire diocese. So whenever you see a priest using any of these oils, they came from this mass at the chrism. So there's, you know, big jars of oil. There's tons of oil. But I particularly remember the sacred chrism coming forward. And as it was coming forward, it dawned on me that that oil that exact oil that's coming forward, that's going to go on my hands in just a couple of months during my priestly ordination. And it was really cool. Something that I hadn't thought about till that moment. It was right there in front of me. I'm like, here in this spot, this bishop will anoint me with this chrism in just a few short months. It was so cool. Such a great moment uh, to, to reflect and get really excited about my upcoming ordination. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Sounds like a great experience. It was. It was pretty cool. So, you know, really, unity is a big piece of that chrism mass, right? Unity with the bishop, the priest being in unity with the bishop, the oils going out to the, enti the entire diocese as another sign of unity for the um, with the diocese and the bishop. So why do we use oil? There's a ton of oil at this mass, and why do we use oil? Yeah, so the first thing 
that I'd like to talk about is anointing. So when we're anointed with oil, the action, the action of the oil anointing us or anointing a person, um, in scripture, anointing really conveys authority. So we can see this with King David. Kings were anointed, um, really all kings, but you know, with King David, when he was anointed by Samuel, the prophet, you know, this was really just, um, he was just a shepherd boy. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't this known figure. Um, and actually at this time, Saul was still king of Israel. And so Saul had the title of king, but David, once he was anointed, he had the anointing of the king. And so he had received the spirit of God. And so sometime after he was anointed by Samuel, David was sent, and I think this is quite crazy to think about in hindsight, but he was sent to bring his brothers lunch yeah. on the battle line. That's right. So they were, the Israelite army was doing battle with the Philistine army. Um, and if you're, even if you're not, uh, you know, well-versed in ancient Jewish history, you probably know about this battle. It's the battle of David versus Goliath that I'm talking about. And the only reason David was there was because he was sent to bring his brother's lunch. That's right. <laughs> and so he goes to the battle line and Saul, the king in title, was there with his army. And it was David who was there bringing his brother's lunch that he then, that he then heard what the Philistines were saying. And he was like, you guys aren't going to do something about this. <laughs> and so it, it was just a beautiful example of what happens with the anointing of God, with that authority. Because although Saul was there leading the Israelites into battle, only David had the authority or anointing in order to win the battle. Yeah. He actually had something different that no one else had in that place. In that moment. If this is true of David, how much more is this true of us? Under the new covenant, we have a new anointing. We have the Spirit of God in an even greater measure yeah. than what David had. That's right. Yeah, we would see in the Old Testament that this anointing would be given to specific people for specific purposes. Now it's been given to every single one of us. We yeah. all have that. We all can do what they did, which is pretty incredible. So another thing that, that oil is used for, it is used for healing. So today, um, uh, an analogy to today would be the essential oils crowd. Do you have your essential oils? <laughs> I do not. I, d I don't really know anything about essential oils besides they're essential for some reason. But apparently I've gotten by this far without essential oils. So maybe they're yeah. not so essential. Yeah, they're inessential. Don't, don't, don't at me with, uh, <laughs> with essential oils. <laughs> so, but really what they're doing is they're using oil for that same reason, right? Healing of some sort. Um, whatever it is. Uh, so with the oil of the infirm, we're not just asking God for a physical healing, which is important to remember that the anointing of the sick does ask for physical healing as well. Um, but the more important healing is the spiritual healing. The, the things that, you know, the woundedness and brokenness that results from our sin, that's the healing that needs to really take place. More important than the physical healing. Physical healing is great, but the uh, spiritual healing is really, really important. We'd also see that oil uh, was used in times of battle. Now, this analogy, I don't know if maybe we kind of retroactively said, hey, that's a good analogy as well. Let's use it. Um, 
Probably, right? That seems kind of right, but I like it anyway. So in ancient times, soldiers would coat their shields in oil. In fact, this was incredibly, incredibly important. So especially if their shields were leather or wood, it was important to keep their shields strong to prevent cracks uh, and, yeah, to, to make sure that the, the shield would actually do what the shield was meant to do, protect them. Um, it would also uh, quench fiery arrows. And, in fact, the arrows would just, boom, slip right off of the, uh, the oil-coated uh, shields. The Romans in particular would have door-shaped shields, which were designed to stack next to each other so that um, uh, not only were they protecting themselves, but with everybody else, the whole group could be protected. There's a communal aspect to that protection. And as you can imagine, there's a very deep spiritual uh, um, analogy here in that. So the important thing, though, was to make sure your whole shield was well-oiled all the time to keep it strong, right? The weakest link in the chain breaks the whole chain so we do the same thing here we oil our shields in order to protect us from the spiritual enemies yeah i really like that me too as you're saying that i couldn't help but think how how much more this even adds another aspect to ephesians 6 mm-hmm. which is you know if you're not if you're not familiar with this i highly recommend going and reading yep. ephesians 6 because um for some, this is a very common prayer that, yep. you know, many pre- many people will even pray daily, putting on the spiritual armor. That's right. Um, and so even just thinking about that additional aspect of, you know, Paul talks about, I believe it's the shield of faith, right? I think so. He, you know, adding that sort of anointing to it, having the anointing of Christ as well. That's just, it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, no doubt. So... That's the chrism mass. We really see the unity of the church there. We see the the oils. Um, But there's another mass that day at your local parish, and this is the mass of the Last Supper. And it's at this uh, mass that Jesus institutes the priesthood and the Eucharist. So we begin, whenever we talk about the Eucharist, the great place to begin is John chapter 6, the great chapter on the Eucharist itself. And... We see Jesus is already starting to reveal his plan for the Eucharist when he says, I am the bread come down from heaven. Now, there's a bunch of I am statements in the Gospel of John. And what he's doing there is making sure people understand that he is claiming to be divine. I am the bread come down from heaven. In the book of Exodus, uh, Moses asks at the burning bush, he asks for God's name so that the people would know who it is who sent them. And God responds, I am who am. I am. And so Jesus calls on that name of God and says, I am. And it was something that, that the, uh, the Jews readily understood what he was claiming there. I am the bread come down from heaven. Another example of Exodus, right? After they, they leave, we're just knocking these microphones <laughs> like crazy today. <laughs> Man. Yep. Yeah. So this is another uh, uh, another reference to the Exodus, where uh, after the Exodus moment, we see um, God providing the people the bread from heaven, the manna. But Jesus is claiming that He Himself is the bread come down from heaven, and then He doubles down on this and says something one of the most radical things I've ever seen in the Scripture: Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the word there is meant to like almost recoil us when we hear this the first time, like, uh, excuse me. The word in Greek 
Uh, the word feeds in Greek is trogo, which means to gnaw or to crunch. It's not meant to be a beautiful word. It's really meant to be... Um, kind of messy. Get, yeah, very it? messy. It's designed yeah. to get that response out of us like, oh. Uh, Jesus is serious when he says this. He means this. That's why he uses this kind of language. Uh, whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This was too much for a lot of the disciples, and to be honest, I don't, you know, I I would agree. It's really difficult language. Like, the Eucharist is Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. But many of the disciples who heard this no longer walked with him after this. It was too much for them. Now, fast forward to the Last Supper. And we're going to read Luke's account of the Last Supper, because it's, it's a good account. Um, so this is Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Wow. I love that account. One of my favorite accounts. And if you're if you're following along, one of the things that I like to do, and I recommend this with John 6, with Luke, really with all of the Gospels, is try and put yourself in the frame of mind of somebody who's literally hearing these words for the very first time. Um. You know, I think like Father Tony was saying with John 6, it's like when you hear that word trogo and you like you really imagine that you're one of the disciples there hearing it for the first time, you would be like, you know, scandalized. Time out, time out. Yep, I'm calling yep. time out here. Wait, what did you just say? Yeah. And I think similarly, if you put yourself in this place in Luke's gospel and you look at what's happening here, hopefully... You know, if you know a little bit of the history of scripture and, and about the apostles and stuff, one of the first things that you might notice is, wow, there's a lot of detail here. But two, how did that detail get in there? Because Luke wasn't there. I appreciate that because that, <laughs> that was definitely needed there. Definitely. <laughs> um. So how did how did it get there? And I think this is a really really fascinating story because um, we know, for instance, that Luke traveled with Saint Paul. Now, if you look at this and you compare these words um, at the institution of the Eucharist, if you compare them to what Saint Paul says in First Corinthians ten and elsewhere, where he he has like brief mentions of the Eucharistic prayer, Luke's account of the Last Supper very likely comes from St. Paul. In fact, Luke's account of the gospel, the whole gospel, likely comes from St. Paul. Um, and so it was a, essentially a secondhand account where he then, you know, shared all of these things with, um, you know, with his listeners. And so 
I think that's it's such a beautiful thing because one, where did St. Paul get it? Because he wasn't there either. Correct. So the plot thickens, really, <laughs> because he wasn't there. And so what likely happened, how this, how this really got into Luke's gospel, is probably we read about in Acts of the Apostles where Paul, after his conversion, he actually spends, I believe it's like three or four years um, just like by himself, basically just kind of like taking in what he received on the road to Damascus and trying to grapple with what what God was saying to him. Because you got to remember, it wasn't clear that God was saying, create a new religion. In fact, Christians didn't even think that's what God was saying in, until right. that time. They really still saw themselves as Jews. Mm-hmm. They just also celebrated the Last Supper, you know? And so, um, and so for Paul, he spent this time in the wilderness, three or four years, and then he goes to meet with, it says Cephas, Peter, and the other apostles. And so he spends several days with them, just talking with them nonstop. You know, what what did Jesus do? Basically, it, you know, I've, I've wondered many times, like, man, what were they talking about in that time? Yeah. But as I think about this now, I know what they were talking about. They were sharing the gospel with him. You know, Peter was there sharing what we now know as Matthew's gospel, probably. And likewise, you know, others were... Just they were just sharing re- stories over yeah. and over again of what Jesus did during those three years. Yeah, like we lived with the Messiah for three years, and they're just probably sharing stories and explaining, well, you know, this is how we see it fitting into our Jewish faith. This is what... Right. This is what the realization of the Messiah looks like. Mm-hmm. And so, likewise, where does this story come from? It probably actually was relayed to Paul directly from the 12 apostles in those few days that they spent together yeah. in Jerusalem. Ah, that's amazing. So, ah, I love that. That And that's just how the faith is always transmitted, right? Like, that's the, the premier way to transmit the faith. Just sit down, share stories, talk about who is Jesus. That's the way it's meant to be shared, even to this day. That's the way the gospel is meant to be shared. So let's do that. Jesus, at, at, at the institution of the Eucharist, he gives us those words of institution. We hear those words at every Mass. We see this in every gospel. We see it in St. Paul as well, 1 Corinthians. And we know that they begin to do this from the very beginning. They begin to celebrate the Eucharist from the very beginning of the church. The bread and the wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ himself. This was also known from the very beginning. So on Holy Thursday, we celebrate Jesus choosing to remain with us even after his ascension. Have a happy Easter, everybody, and um, go blue. <laughs>